If you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn back to John chapter 1. I, I, I can't speak for you, nor would I presume to, but I, uh, I am really am enjoying uh, teaching the gospel of John. Uh, you know, it's a thing that, uh, it's a book that I've always really wanted to delve into. Uh, I've been through it probably, oh, eight or nine, ten times by myself, uh, just laying it out and studying it, but uh, the joy of going through it with you and having a great time and watching how it really clicks with so many of you. And last week we talked about verses 15, 16, or 17, and, uh, you know, really three key verses on our being a, a witness for Christ. Uh, based on John the Baptist and his witness as he showed up at the first coming. And we talked about the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ. And, you know, whenever I talk about the fullness of God or Christ, I'm always reminded of that great passage in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 17, 18, and 19, that, you know, Paul is talking to the church, and he's laying out uh, everything that has happened since Christ came and died, you know, and went back to heaven. And he says to that group of people in that church that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I, I, to me, I think what a great set of verses that that is. You know, God's people, you and me, having the ability uh, to have the fullness of God in our lives. You know, so many religions and so many Christians, you know, believe that uh, you, you can't do that, that you just get part of God, you know, and you have to strive for the rest of your life to be worthy to get, but that's not true. You know, I told you last week, the moment you got saved, you got all of God that there was. The real question is, does he have all of you? So you're giving yourself to him. And, and I want you to notice in those three verses, three things that we've been preaching about. Verse 17 says, God dwelling in our hearts. Remember last week, he came and dwelt among men. Verse 18 says, to comprehend the depth of God. And then verse 19, the fullness of God. And, you know, what you take away from that in its most simplest form is that the depth and the fullness of God starts with him dwelling in our hearts. And that's where we, he has to reign. You know, depth is the spiritual fourth dimension of God that most people never get to. In our physical life, we have a three-dimensional world. <clears throat> Everything's in a three-dimensional format. You have, and it, it lists it there. You have the height, the breadth, and the length. And those are the three dimensions of life. And when Christ came... He came into that world of a three-dimensional world. And most of God's people, they, if they understand God at all, if they understand Christ at all, they, they always understand him in that three-dimensional aspect. But most people never get the depth. And the depth is the spiritual dimension. The depth is a dimension that goes way beyond the physical aspects of Christ. You know, in the unsaved world, they talk about the fourth dimension. And to them, it is that, you know, mystical world out there that exists that you can't see. Uh, and it's a, it's a dimension of, 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 on, a, on a plateau of, of greatness that uh, steps way outside and we can't see into it. And, of course, they have the concept, but they don't have how it lays out in the Bible. 
there is no fourth dimension that is a goofy little thing where it's outside of the realm of what we know, the paranormal. Uh, but there is a fourth dimension spiritually, and that is the depth of God. Coming to the place in your life and my life that we understand the fullness, all that God is, not just having it, but not only just understanding it, but allowing it to work through us. You know, in the football world, and I don't know much about football, but in the football world, in the NFL teams, they have what they call a depth chart. And a depth chart is a list of positions and who's best at doing that. And of course, you know, if they got a certain play or somebody gets hurt, they'll look at the depth chart and see who is the next best guy to be able to do that. And it shows the abilities of the players. And uh, it'll on a, on a list of positions and who can do what, both offense and defense and, you know, I'm sure on special teams. And it basically is, as they look at that, who has the best knowledge and experience and ability to get the job done. And, of course, for them, it's, you know, winning the ball game. But yet at the same time, I have my own depth chart. Mine's a spiritual one. And we're a team here, just like any football team, baseball team, you know, we're a team. We work together. We have a goal. We want to, we're in a race, the Bible says. And I have a depth chart too. And when I look at my depth chart, it's you. And I look at who I can count on to cover whatever position needs to be covered with confidence that you get the job done. And uh, it's a thing where on whatever level you're at spiritually, some of you are just getting into this and you're being discipled and you're working through and you're doing great. Some of you are what I call the midline people who are really moving along. And then there's some of you who really have that depth. And, uh, you know, when I have a job come up or something needs to be done, in my mind, you know, I have constantly my depth chart. Who is able to do whatever? Affectionately speaking, I call you guys my go-to guys and my go-to girls who can get the job done and whatever and ever it is. You know, in the military, you have, you know, a, uh, a, an airborne unit called the 82nd Airborne Unit, 82nd Airborne. And uh, they were started back in the 40s. They actually were built off the All-American Division of World War I uh, as an infantry but when they started the concept of the paratroopers, the 82nd was the first one that they formalized. And it fought all through early Sicily, North Africa. I mean, they, they went all the way. And, uh, in fact, that's their motto, all the way. And the 82nd is still around today. And, but there especially is now that, uh, you know, they got the SEALs and the special forces that can do all that black ops stuff. But the 82nd Airborne is designed today as a rapid deployment battalion. And the idea is to be able to take these guys who are so highly trained, highly motivated, highly ready to go, that they can drop them in any place in the world within 24 to 48 hours and they can handle any situation that may come up that they have to deal with. And, I, and, I, and I've looked at that over the years and, you know, and thought to myself, you know, what kind of guys they are that are do that, you know, and, you know, and yet at the same time, in my mind, that's the way Christianity ought to be. You and I ought to get to the place in our life with the fullness of God and the depth of God that God can drop us into any scenario, any place, in this city, in this country, or around the world. And many of you are at that point in your life right now. 
that I would have total confidence that if I had to put you someplace to do something that, you know, I know you'd get the job done. And, and that's part of understanding how that we, we build that, the depth chart. And it's basically, you know, based on that concept of the name, depth, how deep that person goes outside the natural things of this world to be able to see and understand God. You know, we talked about, and then we talked about the grace of God. And we talked about that grace and faith. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, it talks about grace by measure. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it talks about faith by measure. And we talked about how that when you got saved, God just gave you a measure of faith and grace to trust him. And then once you get that measure of faith, it's up to you and me to develop it. My job as a pastor and the job of this church is to take you in whatever form you are once you get saved and help you develop that and hopefully get to the fullness where you experience the depth and you can comprehend it. You know, we talked about our stewardship of the grace of God based on 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, how that oh, there's so many aspects to grace. We actually just think about it about salvation, but I gave you a whole list of them last week. And we're to be stewards of that because grace is not only the key to your salvation, but it's the key to where you go the rest of your life and how that the Bible says that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ and how these two will form the biblical balance in our lives. Having faith without grace or having grace without truth uh, will be an improper balance. And we know from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1, that a false balance is an abomination in the sight of God. It takes the balance of both. No grace, then you have no real truth. No real truth, you have no real grace. And no grace and no truth, then you have no basis for forgiveness. And I said it last week, we are so willing to accept forgiveness of God through his truth and his grace we're just not too willing to pass it out and give it to somebody else. And honestly, as I said last week, there you have 20 and 21st century modern-day Christianity, some of the most graceless people uh, that you will ever find uh, in your life. And they just, uh, grace is not something that ever moves past the point of them accepting salvation by the measure of grace, but they never, never develop it. So that was last week, and, you know, that's kind of, I like to build a bridge from last week to this week to kind of tie all this stuff together. And today, we will want to look at just one more single verse. We got through three last week. That ain't going to happen today. Now, I don't know. If you've noticed so far in the book of John, we have come across some really important doctrinal issues single verses or a couple of verses together that really form up a fundamental absolute truth that we all need to know that form the basis of much that we believe. Simple statements that will carry the weight of, of an incredible doctrinal teaching. You remember now the word doctrine means to teach. And you're seeing in, as we're just coming through these things, verses that the whole idea of Christianity will be built on, what we call the fundamentals of what we believe in Christianity. You know, and so it should be no, uh, no real surprise to the reader that John's gospel will lay out, as we've seen so far coming through it, the great teachings on the deity of Christ and the absoluteness of the Word of God as the eternal Son of God. 
And uh, so it's no great thing if, that, uh, if all that Christ is and his manifestation to man should not be laid out in these great verses. And, and that's what he does. You know, learning Bible doctrine. I remember when I first got saved and, you know, I was kind of putting it all together. I, 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 I got that pounded into my head, much like I pounded into you. Learning Bible doctrine. Learning what the Bible teaches. Most of God's people know some things about the Bible, but they won't really know the Bible. And, uh, you know, so far in chapter 1, you know, we saw in verse 1, the be- in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we dealt with that. What an incredible verse and where that leads to us. And we define when it says, in the beginning. We now know that what that beginning was. We, we talked about it. And that set up one of the most amazing platforms of truth by which the rest of your Christian life, the more you learn it, it's the entryway to the depth. We saw in verse 3 that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And we saw God as creator. And we saw as it laid out in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 17, that he is before all things. And by him all things consist. We looked at verse 5, how it says that the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Hey, your whole, the rest of your Bible unfolds itself around that verse right there. It's just that simple. What we're facing today, it, it isn't the Democrats versus the Republicans. It isn't the saved people versus the unsaved people. It's light versus darkness. That's where it started, and that's where it will end, and that is certainly where we're at now. And the Bible says in Genesis 1-4 that God divided the light from the darkness. And, of course, that's what a great fundamental truth that is. We saw in verse 9 that he's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And we answered that age-old question, what about the heathen in Africa? How does God get the light to somebody where There is no church where there is no missionary, where there is no, does he just leave them? No, we know now. And that is an incredible piece of information as you're trying to put your Bible together. And then we saw in verse 12 and 13 uh, about becoming a son of God through his coming to die for you and me on the cross. And the Bible made it clear, one of the clearest verses in the Bible, that it's not of works. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. The will of man, you can't get it, you know, from some man can't give it to you. By the will of the flesh, it's not, it's not like your car title that you can transfer over to somebody else. You can't transfer your salvation to somebody else. It's only for you. But of God... And we, we saw that great truth, how that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come under repentance, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says. And then we saw that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we talked about 1 Timothy three sixteen. Wow. God manifested in the flesh. We talked about him dwelling and how a dwelling, dwelling place. And I took you back to the Feast of Tabernacles and showed you how that, that is the uh, feast that lines up to the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, when God came down and tabernacled among us. And I showed you how that they did that in the Old Testament to, as a picture of that. And how Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says that Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
And then last week, we got into grace and truth, uh, forming the balance in our lives, you know, and how that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And these will form key Bible doctrines for us. Uh, the standard truth by which the New Testament church has been built on. If we had time this morning, and we've done it in Institute, and I've done it in other places, if we had time this morning, I would show you the 9 or 10 or maybe 11 or 12, depending how you count them, concrete fundamental doctrines that the Bible is built on, and not just the Bible, every single thing we believe will be on those basic fundamental doctrines. And it started when Paul, we know who Paul was, he got the commission from God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He started all the Gentile churches. This church here today, if we could follow it back, we would go right back to where they're first called Christians at Antioch. And that was Paul's job and that was his task. And we know that 2 Timothy 2.1 we are told that Paul said, be ye followers of me as I'm followers of Christ. And he said, the things that you have heard of me among faithful men, the same you do. Amen, many witnesses, the same you take and commit the faithful men. And that's what Christianity is. Christianity is nothing more than Paul starting it back in the book of Acts as he started these churches. He gave them the fundamental truth by which the church is built on and faithful men Faithful pastors, faithful churches, faithful Christians who would not deviate from what the Word of God said simply passed those on down through, through history from church to church to person to person to faithful men to faithful men. And what that forms for us, and this is so vital, what that forms for us is an unbroken chain of Bible truth going all the way back through church history. What Old Paz Baptist Church here believes and teaches can be traced back uh, through all the men, the faithful men who believed exactly what we believe today. And it got passed on to us from generation to generation, down through church history. And our job, our job is to, my job, first of all, is to pass it on to you. Your job is to pass it on to others, and then this church, as we're doing across this country and around the world through all of the churches that we're working with and all of the people out there, we're following that, laying down the unbroken chain. You know, in, and this is why the Bible is so clear that you have to be careful. You have to be aware of men who, who want to break outside that. And uh, you find it all the time. You'll find guys out there who come up with doctrines and teachings in churches that were taught nowhere down through church history. They, play, they claim that Paul taught it in the Bible, so they'll mistake verses out of context to prove their point, and they want to believe it today some 2,000 years later, but the problem is there's 2,000 years of absence of anybody teaching or believing what they believe, you see. You've got to be smarter than the problem, and you've got to realize that what we believe today, we can sit down with anybody and put church history together with the Bible believers and the Word of God and take what we believe all the way back. And you want to be careful of these guys who always 
come around today and they've got this revelation from God, this teaching that changes everything, you know, that we have believed for the last 2,000 years and God only gave it to them. And when you meet guys like that, follow what Romans 16, 17 says, follow what I do based on that verse is, is I avoid them. Mark them and avoid them because they, they, they are way outside the clear, undisputable, unbroken chain of Bible teaching. And I don't care how they, what they claim. It doesn't matter to me. I have an absolute unbroken line of truth that I stay with. You know, when people get mad, and this is true of all churches, but it's true here too. When people get mad over something and get their nose bent on a joint and they leave, you know the first thing they say about us? We're called. And, you know, the funny part of that is they don't even know what a cult is. And it's a thing where, you know, we were, they, they were in this church four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years and everything was fine. But suddenly when they left, I guess they drank out of the wrong cult water fountain upstairs and now here they are. You see, that is, that is one of the most stupidest things that you, I'd come up with something else. You didn't like the lighting. Uh, you didn't like Dell. You didn't like, you know, you didn't like whatever. You know, I mean, uh, one lady didn't want to come to church here because she felt claustrophobic. And yet I went to her office one time and visited with her. Her office was the size of a good-sized bathroom. She was okay there, but this is claustrophobic. I mean, it's not the most beautiful place in the world. I'm not sure the sprinkler systems work, so if we get on fire, use that door because you're probably going to burn up. I don't think much works around here. The air conditioning and the heating has so been put together over the years, you can't trace anything back. I mean, this isn't like Notre Dame, if you want to understand. Of course, that burnt down, so what do you got there? But this isn't like some big $50 million palace that you go to, you know, where you can sit there and, you know, uh, people don't, they get upset. Uh, One person said, you know what, it's too hot in here. Somebody else says, I'm freezing to death in here. So, you know, you got to be smarter than that. So I had Darren put a, put a thing back there on the wall, a thermostat with a sign on it, adjust it where you would like, but nothing's hooked up in it. <laughs> and so people move it where they want to, and then they're happy. You know, you got to be half nuts to deal with God's people today. And so we always get this, you know, where they're a cult. You know what I think we ought to do? And I'm seriously thinking about this. You know, they're not calling me a cult. They're calling, if you're still here, you're a cult member. So I think what we ought to do is draft a certified letter. Everybody sign it, send it to them and say, we're going to set up on Thursday night, that's a, that's a date, a time for you to come in and show us where we are a cult. You know how fast you'd shut that down? So the letter's probably coming in the mail to you here soon we all sign it. But anyway, it's a thing where it, people are stupid. We have an unbroken chain of Bible truth that you can't argue with. And today, we're going to look at just one more incredible verse that carries with it Probably the most single important doctrine in the Bible because of this one, if we're wrong on this one, we're all going to wind up in a lake of fire. And this sets up for us why and why and what we believe about the Bible. 
Very few people today of God's people today know really what they believe. They're not grounded and there's no really depth to them. And those who may know what they believe in most cases don't know why they believe it. You know, years ago, I, this was back in the late 70s, about 78, 79, somewhere in there. And some of you were with me back then. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where I saw the need for helping my people get past the first stages after they got saved. And I remember the first time we sat down in that old office down there in the basement, and I, I had just written 10 or 15 le- uh, uh, lessons on discipleship, uh, what we would call now discipleship one, how to bring people through and just teach you the fundamentals that are the crucial foundation of what we believe. I, I saw that need, and I wanted to eliminate from God's people who wanted the truth to be wonder uh, how all these things came. So we've done that for years. And as what got on and it got bigger, we did it around the world. We did it in Russia. We did it in England. We did it in Germany. We did it in France. We did it in Holland. We did it everywhere. South America, Central America. I mean, uh, it, was, it was just where God took it all over the place. And it was the thing where it was just basic, fundamental truth that why we believe what we believe. And then we expanded it and we developed a discipleship too, which is the next level. And now we have a three that is in the next level. And of course, you know, I'm speaking to people here that are online and you're part of our outreach group. If you want to be discipled and you want to go through that, we're doing people all over this country by Zoom and phone and and, you know, YouTube or whatever else we got out there. And if you want that, just let me know. I'll hook you up, get you lined up with people, and we can get the process started. You know, there is an importance. And I can't, I can't just gloss over these verses. There's an absolute importance of knowing the real substance and importance of verses like we're going to look at today, which I'm going to tell you again, without this verse, if this verse gets messed up, we're all done. We're all cooked. You know, in in the election, which we just came through, which (laughs) we're still coming through it, but you heard a lot about battleground states. And I'm not much on politics and I'm I'm not, but, but I understand what a battleground state is. The battleground states were key states that, in fact, they'll tell you that no president ever got elected without winning Ohio or Florida or whatever, Pennsylvania. And so these become, because, and I don't really understand why they're more important than Iowa or, you know, uh, but they are. And it, it comes down to the fact that, so these become battleground states. And these are the states that elections are won and lost on, and they fight for them. Well, you can see it going on right now, some of the battleground states that they're contesting. And I look at that, and I think to myself, you know what? In a biblical sense, there are battleground verses in your Bible. Just like there's key states that are absolutely essential to you winning the election, I won't tell you something. 
There's battleground verses in your Bible that have been contested over for hundreds of years that if you lose them, you've lost everything. And most people don't understand that. And when we come through the Gospel of John, we're starting to unearth some of these that, and, and learn about them and, and understand how that they all fit together. So I'll tell you, we're going to look at John chapter 1, verse 18. And we're going to look at a real battleground verse. And if this verse doesn't hold true, we're all going to wind up in a lake of fire. So let's have a word of prayer. I'll read it first, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and now we'll get into it. It says, no man has seen God at any time. For John chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for today. We thank you for the folks that are here today. Pray your blessings upon all that we endeavor to do for you today in opening up these great verses. We thank you for the Bible that you've given us, how we now know and have known for a long time that it's the absolute truth of the Word of God. We pray, Father, that you'll give us the blessings today of your Word Uh, Let us leave here today a little richer, a little deeper, a little fuller of you and help us to realize that uh, these are the verses that really constitute a depth, being able to read it, understand it, explain it, and to apply it. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. Now, without a doubt, This verse, along with many others, have been manipulated by our modern-day scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees to a point where it's really quite unbelievable. Uh, You know, at the first coming of Christ, we saw, and we've seen it many, many times, how that the religious constituency, the leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they, they, they hated Christ. They hated everything that he stood for. And we find that in our own world today that the scribes and the Pharisees, the upper echelon of men who want to take the Bible from you, uh, they didn't die out with the end of the first century. And it's the same way today. Rule number one of the day was of the first coming of Christ, get rid of him. And if you want to actually think that they were just in ignorance and didn't know who he was, and what it was all about. You need to read Matthew chapter 21 down around verse 33 through 46, and you will find out that they, at the time of Christ, knew exactly who he was. You'll see the plan that they put together to get rid of him. And today, it's the same way. Get rid of the book. Get rid of the absolute, complete, perfect, inspired Word of God. And today, in the church age, you get rid of the book, you get rid of him. And, uh, you know, and I might add that both were successful. And uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they moved and connected with Rome, the world system. And they got rid of Christ and, you know, crucified him. Now, for you and for me, the crucifixion was our pathway to salvation and praise the Lord for that. But for the nation of Israel, it was purely they're rejecting him and they wanted to get rid of him. And you know what? They paid the price for that because God 
held them accountable. And in 70 AD, just 40 some years after they crucified him in 70 AD, Titus came down and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem and the nation of Israel and scattered them to the point that they didn't get back for many, many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And that was God's hand of chastisement in their life because they rejected him. Now, I'll just take it one step further. You're witnessing to the day that we're living in our 70 AD with Titus coming down. God's people just seem to want to ignore the fact that when you disobey God as God's people, as a nation, when you disobey God as churches, as Christians, in your own life, we want to think that the hand of chastisement is just some figment of somebody's imagination. And we're seeing, you're seeing in America today the hand of God, just like it was in 70 AD, because God's people today and the nation today and the world today wants to get rid of him. And now it's an unfortunate thing, but brother, that's where we are at. And you're going to find that the Bible says that no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. Now, I want to walk you through something today, and I want you to stay with me. And uh, you may not even want to even take notes on this because you can get it on the website later. I don't care if you do. You might just want to sit back and, you know, let me walk you through. I won't tell you a story. And I will try to make it as interesting as I can and not as boring as it has been for me with all the books I had to read and the guys I had to listen to to figure all this out. You're going to find in the majority of all the new Bibles, when you come to verse 118, it says this, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God hath declared him. Now this damnable heresy that Jesus Christ was a begotten God, I want to walk you through how that got into the Bibles today and how that is a absolute blasphemous statement up against the Bible that says that Jesus Christ is God. Because the idea that Jesus Christ was the begotten God is the idea called Arianism in the Bible that someplace way back in the distant past, God begot another God and a lesser God and that was Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ was not equal with God, is not equal with God. And uh, it's a fact that he is a begotten God. So you'll find it in many of your Bibles today uh, that Jesus Christ is not the begotten son, but he is a begotten God. And I can't, let me just say this. If that is true, if that is true, we're we're all lost and we're all dying and going to hell. Now, all down through church history, you will find that great heresies arose to counter what God was doing. And these heresies were by design through Satan to make the word of God not effect. The devil figured that if he couldn't get you 
keep you from getting saved. Then he'd, he'd let you come to the place where you would get into the church that if you wouldn't stay in the world, you'd get into a church that's a religion that would put you in the same boat and you'd wind up in hell. And I'm telling you, the greatest doctrine which we believe that forms the foundation of, of, of Christianity is the fact that Jesus Christ was a begotten son of God, not a begotten God. And as the church grew, the devil brought up some issues theologically. And they surfaced and challenged the true church and the true line, and they had to be dealt with. And I, remember now, I've told you this many, many times, that the key to understanding God history in the Bible is simply this. God moves in a direction to accomplish his plan. The devil moves in a direction to stop it. So we see that early on, when Paul was starting his churches and in the first couple of hundred years after Christianity, and most people don't even know this, we see some real challenges to Christianity that if the true line of faithful men would have not held the line, God only knows where we'd be today. And the first thing that came into question was the resurrection itself. There were a lot of people that believed that he did not raise himself from the dead. Uh, there was all kinds of theories. And of course, in the Bible, you find one of them laid out that they, they, they thought that his followers came and stole his body and took it away and then fabricated the fact that he arose. And that was a common thing back then. Another one is what they call the swoon theory. That Jesus Christ really didn't die on the cross. He just went unconscious. And when they put him into that tomb, if you've been in a cave, you know caves are cooler than outside air. When they put him into there, it was about 65 degrees or so in there. They laid him on that rock. It was nice and cool. It revived him. And then he just got up, called an Uber driver, and was gone. That was very popular. We see that the virgin birth was called into question. We see that people didn't believe that he really was born of a virgin. And uh, so that was called into question. We see in the first three or four hundred years of Christianity that the idea that ba baptism would save you. And of course, that's based on John's baptism, which was to Israel. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which was to Israel. Church is not even in effect yet. But that idea that you getting baptized in water could wash away your sins became very popular. It's popular today. I mean, there are so many people in churches that teach that today. You're going to find that uh, in the first, what, four or five hundred years, you find the, uh, the heresy of amillennialism and postmillennialism begins to lift its ugly head in, in place of, uh, you know, uh, premillennialism, which is what the Bible teaches and what this church believes. There was a time as we moved on where the, secure, the eternal security of the believer came into question. And the idea is that you could lose your salvation by doing something wrong. And, uh, you know, to me, I've never really understood you have to be brain dead to put that one in there because, I mean, how can you lose something because you don't deserve it when you got it when you didn't deserve it? I mean, but that's just me. You're going to find there was a time when predestination came into being. The fact that 
you know, Jesus loves me, sorry about you. You're not part of the chosen few. That God looked down through eternity and said, you're going to heaven, you're not. You're going, you're not. You're going, you're not. You're going, no, Jan's not going. You're not going, you know, you know and picked it who was going and who wasn't. And of course, you know, the church had to stand up to all those. And the reason why this church doesn't believe any of that today that has strayed true to the line of unbroken truth, that anybody can get into church history and follow the true line all the way back to Antioch is because of faithful men did exactly what Paul said. They took the unbroken chain of biblical truth and passed it down. And by the grace of God, thank God, it came to us, to me, to you. And of course, the church age today, we have our issue that we have to deal with, and that is, do you have a perfect Bible? Do you have a Bible without any mistakes, without any, any error in it that is by, from God to you exactly the way God wanted you to have it? And of course, all these issues had to be dealt with. Now, I need to say this. In spite of the true church, Antioch, dealing with all these things as we go down through history and following that true line, you're going to find that, uh, that the heresies continued. The true church may have stayed honest with the Bible, but the devil only used that false teaching to start other churches out there that are churches that teach you that if you go to those churches and follow what they believe, you, you, you'll wind up in a lake of fire just like if you were a drunk all of your life. And, uh, you know, and we're told, and this is why this is so important. These will form the great heresies that the church had to deal with. And you, you would think that the average person, if they don't have a lot of depth to them, they would think that heresies are a bad thing. When in fact, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, we are told that heresies are a good thing. And Paul says there must be heresies among you, or there need to be heresies among you is what he's saying. Because when you have the true line and you stay with the true line, the true line will only expose you what isn't true. So the church doesn't have to fear the great heresies that are out there that have come up through the church because when you have an unbroken line of truth, it exposes the heresies. I mean, it's just that simple. And, you know, and back in the first 300 years of Christianity, this is where the teaching began to come into being that Jesus Christ was a begotten God. And it starts at a place where if you have been through our church history material or you just know church history yourself, you know this starts in a place that it has a bad connotation in the Bible. Alexandria, Egypt. You know, in the book of Acts, and I try to tell you this all the time, how important the book of Acts is because it defines everything for you. You know, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all the historical perspective of the first coming of Christ and how things are getting situated. And then we have the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, the word Acts means Acts of the Apostles, what, what they're doing. 
And of course, we see in the book of Acts where God, before he ever, ever, ever gives us books that are going to teach the church anything, which Romans is the next one, and then, first, and then on down the line. He gave us the book of Acts because the book of Acts defines for us everything we need to look for. The book of Acts is probably the greatest definitive book in the New Testament that defines for us the road signs for the next 2,000 years. You know, I, I've told you before, you know, that in the Old Testament, between the New Testament and the Old Testament, you have four historical books, Matthew, uh, Genesis, uh, uh, the definitive book, Genesis, and then you have four historical books. In the New Testament, you have the four historical books first, and then you have the definitive book, Acts. And really, Acts ends it all, because every book in your Bible, other than what John writes, is done by the end of the book of Acts, and then John finishes up on the Isle of Patmos in 90 A.D., but everything else is done. So, you know, most people don't see it that way. They don't realize that all the other books of the Bible outside of what John writes are all written within the context of the book of Acts' time. And, of course, it's all done by then. And it's a thing where uh, when you get into the book of Acts, it shows you where this thing is going because there, <laughs> there are no more books to follow it. You don't get like you do in the Old Testament where it tells you where everything is going for the next 2,000 years. I mean, you get cut off in 90 AD and there's no more revelation from God. And if you want to figure out who's right, who's wrong, and where it's going, you got to get in the book of Acts. The book of Acts defines for you three cities. Now, these three cities are absolutely crucial. I'm just telling you a story now. Just relax. Chill out. I mean, the first one is Antioch. And the Bible in the book of Acts defines Antioch as the hotbed of New Testament Christianity. They're first called Christians at Antioch. Paul gets sent out from Antioch. Antioch forms for us the beginning of Bible-believing churches that are going to hold the line with truth and pass it on down the line. The second city we have is Rome. And Rome will always be found in the book of Acts and true down through history as the greatest enemy that Christianity has ever had. I mean, it was Rome that killed John the Baptist. It was Rome that killed, uh, you know, the apostle uh, James. It was, uh, and John on the Isle of Patmos. It was, it was Rome that killed millions of Christians. It was Rome that killed James. It was Rome that killed Paul. It was Rome that killed Jesus. Why you would ever think anything good would come out of Rome, I have no idea. Book of Acts tells you that. And then a third one is Alexandria, Egypt. In the Bible, we know that Egypt's the type of the world. And uh, most people don't see about how it's defined in the book of Acts. The first time it pops up is in Acts chapter, well, not the first time, but it, if, in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, the people from Alexandria are teaching the wrong doctrine. You know what they're teaching? Baptism for salvation. I mean, it's just that simple. And of course, uh, most people uh, don't follow it through, but they're going to find out that when, 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 little things like this, when Paul is taken down to Rome and Paul is going to be killed by Rome, the ship that takes him, this would be Acts chapter 27, verse 6, the ship that takes him to Rome to kill him is from Alexandria. Little things like that. First Bible college you find, Acts chapter 19, is added from Alexandria, connected with them. They're teaching heresy. So you begin to see how important these three cities will line up. 
Now, as I said, this is just a little simple thing today. Scholarship makes it so hard. My job is to untie all the naughty knots of, uh, of scholarship and make it plain and simple for you. And this is just a simple story of history. And I'm telling you, you could go downtown to the library in Kansas City. You don't have to go to a Christian library. You can go downtown to the library in Kansas City, Independence, wherever you want to go. And you could find the information that I'm giving you clearly laid out. It's right there. Somebody said one time, well, how do, how do you learn all this stuff? And I looked at them and I said, it's a conspiracy. They hide this stuff in books. Got to read. You got to get some depth to your life. So, once upon a time, around now the first coming of Christ and the next 200 years, Alexandria, Egypt was the intellectual hotspot of the world from a worldly standpoint. There was a university in Alexandria that rivaled any place of learning uh, probably since the Greeks. The library at Alexandria was known as the most incredible source of information uh, in, in the known world at that time. Now keep in mind, the Bible had just been completed in 90 AD by John. And It started in Antioch, and then they copied those and sent them out to other churches. And through the process of time, there, there, there was no restrictions on who could get it. And through the process of time, the manuscripts that were the Bible-believing manuscripts that were from Paul and all the writers of the Bible that were found its way to Antioch found its way into Alexandria, Egypt. In Alexandria, Egypt, they had already taken a guy by the name of Philo who lived 20 years before Christ is even born. He had taken the Old Testament and corrupted it. And now we go through, by the time, uh, you know, we get into 150, 180, another man now has taken over that university or is really leading the, uh, the idea behind him. And his name is Origen. And he lives about 185 and he dies. They're not sure when he dies, but he, he lives during this time. And what he did is he took those manuscripts out of Antioch that he got his hands on. It'd be just like you going down to your Christian bookstore and buying a King James Bible and then taking it home and saying, well, I don't agree with that. I don't like that. And then just changing whatever you don't like about it and making you a new Bible. So what he did with the Greek New Testament that had been at Antioch that went down to Alexandria, he went over it and didn't like much of what was in it. It didn't line up to what he believed and he began to change and alter the things in that manuscript that he didn't like. Now, let me just talk to you about a few things that Origen didn't believe. He didn't believe that you got saved by the blood of Christ. He believed that you got saved through baptism. So you know what? When he was correcting this Greek manuscript, he took all the places where the blood is out, took it out. He believed that you had to work your way to get to heaven, so he took grace out. He didn't believe there was a hell. 
He, beloved, he thought there was a devil, but he thought actually that the devil and Christ would be reconciled someday. He did not believe that there was going to come an eternal judgment, as we know with the great white throne judgment. He did not believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. So when he got back into the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which says that he was, Christ was born of a virgin, he changed that because he didn't believe it, and now it says that Jesus Christ was born of a young woman. Well, whoop-de-doo. There's just a little difference of a woman having a baby than a virgin having a baby. Or maybe that's just me. He didn't believe that. So when they corrupted the Old Testament, look at it. You got an RSV Bible this morning. They took out virgin and they put in young woman. Isaiah 7, 14. What? Origen didn't believe it. Origen taught that Jesus Christ was not God, but he was a lesser God. So when he comes to our text today of John chapter 1, verse 18, he didn't agree with that. He didn't believe that. So in the Greek text, he changed no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him to no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. It starts with him. He rejected the Trinity. So in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7 in your King James Bible, you have the absolute greatest single verse in the Bible that tells you that God is part of a Trinity. But Origen didn't believe that, so in all your new Bibles, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 is taken out. And yet, get Philip Schaff's work, 12 volumes on church history, some of the most boring things you ever read, no pictures. Get a little book called Who's Who in Christianity, a little paperback. You could probably get that for a couple of bucks. Uh, it's out of print for years, but nobody wants it. And of course, when you read about who Origen was by these guys, he's held up as the greatest Bible scholar, expository. He wrote, he wrote two books a week. I mean, endless volumes on the things that he wrote about the Bible, and every piece of it will send you to the lake of fire. And he changed John 1.18 from begotten son to a begotten God. When he was done with correcting that Greek manuscript, stay with me now. When he was done correcting that Greek manuscript, he had changed the Greek text out of Antioch that went to him. And his final product, there were 75,000 changes in it. Most of those had to do with the deity of Christ and the blood of Christ. All right, now let me fast forward button here. Come up 300 years, 300 AD. This is not hard. They'll want to make it hard. I want to make it simple. 300 AD, Roman Empire, Constantine the Great is on the throne. Constantine is given the notoration by all the writers of bringing an end to pagan Rome and bringing Christianity to Rome. 
That's what the scholars will tell you. That's what Philip Schaff will tell you. That's what all the writers will tell you in history. Let Bob tell you what happened. He put an end to pagan Christianity, and he started the Roman Catholic Church. He went from pagan Rome to papal Rome. That's all he did. He called the Council of Nia III in 325 A.D. to bring all of his kingdoms together. And when he went back to Byzantium, which is modern-day Istanbul, which was called Constantinople, which means Constantine City. He was a very humble guy. He put a bishop on the throne and left him in Rome, which became the first pope. Now, Constantine is starting his own religion. He himself claimed to have a vision from God. He's fighting a battle in 313 A.D. at a place called Melvian Bridge. I don't know where that's at, probably outside St. Louis someplace. But he's fighting a battle there, and he's greatly outnumbered. And he says that he had a dream that night that God met him and spoke to him and told him that if he put crosses on all of his horses, the shields, and gave God the honor and glory that he would win the battle. Well, he gets up the next morning, runs down to True Value, gets about 50,000 cans of spray paint, and everybody's got a cross on him by noon. And he wins the battle. Based on that, he now claims that he's a Christian. And he launches this great, 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 and again, go down to the Kansas City Public Library. It's all there. If you think this is just my heresy and this is the cult, we'll see you Thursday night. He goes, launches this great soul winning program to make everybody a Christian. And he says, you know what? If you become a Christian, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. If you don't become a Christian, we'll kill you. Needless to say, conversion records were high. And he starts, and what he did was bring all the pagans into the church and all the teachings. Now, okay, now he started this and he says, okay, now I'm going to need a Bible. Here it comes. I'm going to need a Bible. Well, there was a church father that was a pastor by the name of Eusebius. And Eusebius worshiped the ground that Constantine walked on. And so Connie calls up Eub and says, look, if we're going to have a legitimate church, we're going to need a Bible. So he charged, he charged Eusebius with getting a Bible. Now, here it comes. It's easy. You know what Oyub did? He ran down to Alexandria, Egypt, and ordered 50 copies of the New Testament from origin in Alexandria. Hey, in the British Museum they still have the letter that he sent down to whoever to have him UPSed up as fast as they could. 50 copies of the New Testament, of Origins New Testament that had been corrupted in over 75,000 places. That becomes the official Bible of Constantine, which in time becomes the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. You find it first popping up in 400 A.D. with Jerome's Latin Vulgate. In 1582, it's translated again, and it becomes the Douay Reims. And by 1900, it becomes translated into the American Bible or the Jerusalem Bible. And what we have now, 
clearly in church history. It's not only two lines of churches, but now we have two lines of Bibles. Now here it comes. In time, every new Bible on the market today, I don't care, will now come from the Greek text that Constantine got from Alexandria, Egypt. Here's how it happened. It's a simple story. It's just a simple little story. And you can go down to any library in Kansas City, Independence, Raytown, well, Raytown you couldn't, but Raytown don't have a library. <laughs> they have the Redneck Bard Grill down there, but you could get a lot of pick up, good, a lot of good stuff there if you go down and just listen to what they talk about. But anyway, in 1489, in the Vatican, they're knocking down some walls, making a rec hall for the Pope or something, I don't know, and they found this secret room that nobody had even known for a thousand years. Of course, the Vatican is, you know, it's been built over a thousand times. And, and so they knocked this wall out. Here was a room. In it was stacks of Greek New Testaments. A little bit later on in 1850, a guy by the name of Tischendorf, he's a German archaeologist. He's in the Sinai Peninsula there at St. Catherine's Monetary. It's a cold day, and St. Catherine's, it's on a mountain. It's Mount Sinai. It's where Moses saw the burning bush. They still have the burning bush. It's just out of gas. It don't burn anymore. But you had to get in a bucket, and they had to pull you up because it's on a mountain. So he's up there, and it's cold. And so he's walked, bebopping around, talking to all the monks and see how things are going. And he looks over here, and it's wintertime, and he sees some monks lighting a fire, and he thinks that that looks like manuscripts that they're doing that, and he runs over there, and voila. You know what he finds? He finds the Greek manuscripts that nobody has ever seen. And when you compare the two together, to make a long story short, there's no question about it, they are the ones that Constantine got from, from uh, Egypt, and uh, they have been lost all those years. And now they've been found. And it's an amazing thing. Now all the scholarly world goes crazy because these manuscripts, here it comes, here's the key. These manuscripts date now that they found, they say to 300, which is Constantine's time. And they say because they're the oldest manuscripts that we find, they're more closer to the original. That's the party line that you get. So fast forward a little bit. Around 1888, you had two Roman Catholic guys, one by the name of Westcott and Hort, both unsaved guys. And uh, they do in 1888, they worked 20 years on taking the Greek manuscript from Vaticanus, which is now what it's called, and Sidiaticus, which is now what it's called, Christendorf, and put together a Greek New Testament that the scholarly world thinks is closer to the original, and they dump the text that your King James Bible come from. Because your King James Bible, the completest text, as they say, is about 1200 A.D., so these are much, much older, so they got to be much, much closer. And in 1888, they published the first new translation, the RSV. In 1901, they come up with the ASV of 1901. And up to this day, every translation has come out, comes off Westcott and Hort's manuscripts based on 
the Vatican based on Constantine, based on Alexandria, that has changed in 75,000 places. I always make it an easy illustration like this. You've heard this before, but it, it illustrates the point. Back in 16, back in 1700, if you walked down the street and you looked up there and you saw ye old Christian bookstore, and you went in there and you said, hey, I'd like to buy a Bible, the proprietor would say, well, come on back here. We have two. We have the King James 1611 authorized version, or we have the Douay Reims. That's all you had to pick from. That's all you had, guys. That's all you had. I'm sorry. That's all you had. One or the other. You either took the Bible out of Antioch that the true line was following, or you took it out of the Roman Catholic Church with 75,000 changes in it that was corrupted with, with origin. Now, fast forward again. This afternoon, we're going to have a bus out here, and we're going to put you all in it, probably take a couple buses, and we're going to take you over to a, a Christian bookstore. And I'm going to give you a little test. We're going to go in there, and we're going to say, and I'm going to say to the guy, we all want a Bible. And he's going to walk us down the aisle, and you're going to see on both sides of the aisle, what, 500 translations of the Bible. You're going to be able to get whatever you want. You're going to be able to get the Black Lives Matter version. You're going to be able to get the Jewish version. You're going to be able to get the gay version. You're going to be get whatever you want. 500 New Testament Bibles or Bibles out there that you can have your pick from. RSV, NIV, whatever, Living Bible, uh, Good News for Modern Man, Bad News for Modern Man. I mean, all oh, there. Now, here's the point. Truth of the matter is, you've still only got two Bibles to pick from. You have the King James Bible, which comes off the text in Antioch, or every other other translation now has come off the Sidiatus and the Vaticanus, which comes from Constantine, which comes from Alexandria, which came through the Roman Catholic Church. You only have two. It just looks like you have a lot of choices. You have a lot of choices of a Bible off a corrupt text is what you have. That's all you have. And most will teach you the heresy that Jesus Christ in John 1.18 was a begotten God. I cannot emphasize to you how important it is to understand how all of Christianity, these are battleground verses. Now today we have in our world Jehovah Witnesses. We have Mormons. We have Church of Christ. They all teach that Jesus Christ was not God. They all teach that Jesus Christ was a begotten God. The Jehovah Witness to up about 1950 was saddled with the King James Bible. Around 1950, they got a new Bible off of the corrupt manuscripts called the New World Translation. And the New World Translation fit into their theology much better because in the New World Translation, it said that Jesus Christ was the begotten God, exactly what they believed. They had to get rid of the King James Bible because Baptists were kicking their rear end so much trying to believe this doctrine when the Bible was pointed out to them that he was very God. So they had to get their own. Isn't it nice when the Bible doesn't fit what you want it to believe? You just write your own Bible to get it fit what you want to believe. You know what? That's not the way it works. You don't change the Bible to fit your belief. You fit your belief to change to the Bible. But that's the way it goes. And along with after that, we got the we got the neo-evangelical crowd and a lot of the Baptist crowd that followed the same thing. And all the reject that reject the text. Now, in 1973, the NIV was published. And of course, uh, 
Uh, if you would take an NIV and play it next to a King James Bible, you will find that there are 64,000 changes between the two. Now, your Bible, as you have right here in front of you, you have a King James Bible, has 788,280 words in it. When you take an NIV, there are 64,596 words, phrases missing. That's enough to make almost 20 books of your Bible completely taken out. Now, the writers in the Greek text that they used was the same ones that they all use. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where your Bible says, God was manifested in the flesh. In the NIV, it says, he was manifested in the flesh, takes God out. Now, some people are okay with that. <laughs> I'm not. It takes out the blood in hundreds of places. It takes out the deity. In hundreds, it takes out the word begotten. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, it takes the place of Jesus Christ, the title for Jesus Christ, and gives it to the devil. In Luke chapter 11, we have what we call the Lord's Prayer. Do unto others before they do it to you or something like that. We have what we call the Lord's Prayer. If you get an NIV, you will find that exact prayer in the NIV is found in Madame Blasky's book on doctrine of black magic and witchcraft at the exact same prayer that they pray to Satan. And God's people are okay with that. You know, you know what? I don't think it's the fact that God's people are okay with it. It's the fact that God's people are just stupid. They don't read. They don't study. They don't care. Just give me a Bible. I'm not going to read it anyhow. I need it on my coffee table to make me look like I'm somebody. They don't study. They don't read. So they get caught up in this. You know the devil's greatest tool that we give him that helps him mess our life up is our own stupidity, our own laziness. The fact that we won't get into that Bible and find out the battleground verses and find out why. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. There were people that gave their lives down in the dark ages, the Waldensians, the Albigenses, the Huguenots, the Polyseans. They gave their life over John chapter 1, verse 18. And we just blow it off today. We don't care. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, in your Bible, the King James Bible, it says that we're redeemed through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. The NIV says it's just the forgiveness of sin. They take blood out of it. Because Origen didn't believe any of that. Because it's the same text that's out of Alexandria, Egypt, that makes Jesus Christ a begotten God somewhere back in eternity. Origen rejected the doctrine of Christ being a begotten son. You see, we look at the liberals today and we look at the, you know, the, um, the socialists and all that, and uh, we, we know that they want to destroy our country uh, with a radical idolatry or ideology, excuse me. And yet we get all upset about that, but we don't even understand that Bible scholars in their colleges already did that. And you know what? When it comes back where Marxists started and communism started with John Lennon, I'm not John Lennon, with Lenin, <laughs> Lenin and Trotsky and, and those guys, you know, where it, you know where the communist movement started? 
You know when it hit Central America, you know where it started. You know when it hit South America where it started. You know where it got into Europe where it started. It started in the universities and the colleges. And we find that, you know what, we, we just forget about the fact that our own colleges have come to the place with their own radical ideology that you don't have a perfect Bible and that Jesus Christ was a begotten God. And we're okay with it. And yet, your King James 1611 authorized version tells that that he was not begotten as God in eternity past. Let me show you how the Bible always interprets itself. You don't have to worry about it. In Acts chapter 13, verse 33, and Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it tells you clearly that it wasn't, a, it wasn't in eternity, and it wasn't a begotten God. Acts 13, 33 says, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, his children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it also is written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day. Have I begotten thee? He wasn't begotten some plastic eternity. He was begotten in day. That's time. Now, you want to see that defined? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, 5, and 6. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. There it is again. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now watch how the Bible defines that day for you. Verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. Jesus Christ was not begotten one day before he was born in Matthew chapter 2 and 3. He was begotten as the son, eternal Son of God when he was brought into this world. You can't get around it unless you just don't believe what you read. Now that is a battleground verse. Absolutely crucial. That is run rampant today with God's people because one, they're ignorant. Two, they just don't care about the credibility of their Bibles. Now, the next part of that verse, of verse 18 says, no man has seen God at any time. Yet we find numerous times in the Old Testament where people do see God, don't we? Adam, Adam saw him in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, or at least 2 and 3. Jacob wrestled with him in Genesis 20, 32, 30, in Hosea 12, 4. He wrestled with him. Moses saw him in Deuteronomy 34, 10. And the Bible says he spoke to him, what, face to face like a man speaketh to his friend? Ezekiel, uh, Exodus thirty-three eleven. In Exodus 24, 9 and 10, the 70 elders were with Moses. They saw him. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 5 saw him. He says, I saw the Lord lifted up. Joshua saw him in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 15, captain of the Lord's host. Peter, James, and John saw him at the Mount of Transfiguration, and Paul sees him in Acts chapter what? 9, 10, 11, 12 on Mount Sinai when he gets the commandment and the commission from God to start churches. See, this is where the Bible can become confusing for young Christians uh, when you're trying to put it all together. But when you add 1 John chapter 1 and you keep the thing moving, then you, it, it all lays itself out. Now, here it comes. You want to learn your Bible today? Okay, here we go. You want to learn your Bible today? Here we come. Here it comes. 
Say, what heresy is this? Oh, show up on Thursday night and we'll give you a shot at it. Here it comes. No man has seen God at any time. Really? Okay, here we go. How do we reconcile that? Jesus Christ, throughout the Bible, at least, at least has nine different bodies. From Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 1.1, Romans chapter 8 says that he's brought forth. So we have some kind of body there. Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3, he's walking through the garden in the cool of the day. He's obviously meeting with them. He had to have some kind of body then. In the Old Testament, Galatians chapter 4 verse 14 says he shows up as the angel of the Lord. He's got somebody there. He's Christ at the first coming of Christ. He's the son of man. He has a body there. After the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 17, they come up and he said, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my father. And they couldn't touch him. But in three hours later or four hours later in, in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 9, they hold him, they touch him, and he's got no blood. Body's different there. In the church age, he has a body, the body of Christ, you and me, he has a glorified Christ at the second coming. He's got a body there, and he's on the throne with David in the millennium. He's got some kind of body there. See, study the show thyself approved. You realize I haven't used any Greek or Hebrew to figure all this out yet? See, when it says no man has seen God at any time, now here it comes. You're going to learn something here. When it says that no man has seen God at any time, that's true. Because John chapter 4, verse 24 says, God is a spirit, and we that worship him, but worship him in spirit and truth. You can't see a spirit. And God is a spirit. So you can't see God. But God needed to manifest himself to man to communicate with man. So he did it through a person by manifesting himself in the form of Jesus Christ. So throughout the Bible, you have Jesus Christ in different forms. All God manifesting himself, the man, in a different manifestation. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. When he came to Adam and Eve and he's walking into the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis chapter 3, that's one manifestation. In the Old Testament with Jacob and Moses, it changed now, and he's the angel of the Lord, Galatians 4.14. Some kind of pre-incarnate appearance of Christ who represented God when he met with those guys. Uh, when he's the begotten uh, on a day at the first coming of Christ, he comes as the Son of God and the Son of Man in a physical body. And he's rejected and crucified. Now we come into the church age, you and I, and we are Christ's body. The church is called, you are called the body of Christ. He lives inside you. He dwells inside you. You now manifest God, or you should be. See, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You see, you're his body, so he gave you his mind so you could get the job done. See how easy that was? I'm telling you. 
you couldn't find five pastors in this city and probably a handful of Christians that could even begin to lay that out for you. And it's not that I'm so smart, it's that I'm so stupid that I just believe the book God gave me. There's no intelligence in here. Not much at all. Shut up, Bozy. There's no intelligence in here. I'm just stupid enough to believe that God gave me a book that is his mind that if I want to get a depth with God, which I don't have, but if I ever want to get that depth, that's where it's going to be. Now, there's something else here. When God in his plan, and you're going to like this, when God in his plan decided to reveal himself to man, I mean, let's be honest, he could have done it any way he wanted to. Every raindrop that came down could have busted open and the little voice would have said, turn to Jesus. Why, the, the birds are the greatest singers in the world. He could have had birds out there in your backyard chirping, Jesus loves you, this I know. He could have done it that way. Did you ever notice how he decided to do it? He decided to pick a father-son relationship. He decided to take God the Father, manifest himself as a son, Jehovah Witness will never get this. And there's two reasons he did it that way. One, because in Exodus chapter 4, the nation of Israel is God's son in a corporate nation. In the church age, you and I are God's son as individuals in his body. So by God, who was a spirit manifesting himself as a son, he provided for Israel and us a perfect model of what our relationship should be as God's son with the Father. I know, I get it. I mean, uh, I mean, there are many good examples in the Bible of men and women who have a great relationship with God, and we can learn from them. Abraham, are you kidding me? Abraham, one of the greatest models anywhere in the Bible of a relationship with God. Moses, come on. Moses is probably more written about Moses than any other man in the Bible. He had a relationship with God face to face. Are you kidding me? Job, you want to go through some suffering? Job. Isaac, are you kidding me? Greatest picture of the crucifixion in Genesis chapter 22. Are you kidding me? Joseph, the greatest type of Christ in the Bible is Joseph. David, you want to learn the word of God? It's David. Daniel, you want to learn how to stand in this world? It's Daniel. John uh, the Baptist, he's a witness. John the Apostle, greatest picture of what your life and my life should be. Peter, I mean, come on, a great example of what I need to be in my life. Paul, how to reach the world. They're all good, and you can learn buckets loads from them, but they're not perfect. And they all failed somewhere along the line. So by the invisible God wanting to connect with me and you, forget everything else I've gave you now, the invisible God wanting to connect and commune with you and me. God is a spirit. You can't see a spirit. So God had to manifest himself in a form that would not only allow him to communicate but be a perfect model of what he wanted us to have. So you know what God did? He manifested himself as his own son because there's only one perfect man, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ who in all points are tempted like we are, Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin. Nobody other man in the Bible could say that. And so, see, he became our perfect model through that manifestation. He became our perfect model for grace, for forgiveness, for ministry, for fellowship, for obedience, for prayer, for giving, for loving people, for loving God, for loving the brethren, 
for long-suffering, for patience. He became the perfect model. We learned everything from so much from everybody else, but they all failed. We needed to have a model that never failed. And the only way God could give us that is through himself. So he manifested himself as a son. And through that was obedient unto death. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they live and wait, lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, grace and truth, may grow up into him in all things which he is the head of the church. Not, note, it says, doesn't say growing up unto him. It says growing up into him. You see, by the perfect model, by you and me being the body of Christ, by us having the word of God, which is his mind, which protects his deity and the blood, which is perfect, we now have the ability to grow up into him. And you know what happens when you grow up into him? You still keep your old body, but it's on the inside that grows. And the inside will control the outside. And you grow up into him. And then you enter in at some point into that fourth dimension that you have the depth of God. And then you're able to comprehend that depth and it leads to the fullness of God in your life. You're his body. Most of God's people are his body, but they're a mindless zombie body. Because being his body without having his mind is worthless. He gave us his body in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he gave us the mind in a volume of a book. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, was with God, and the word was God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And you have it in your hands today. We have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And when you do that, and you take it seriously, and you begin to build those things in your life, you grow up in to him, through God himself giving us the perfect model, through the manifestation of himself, through the Son of God, and through the Word of God, that we might have the fullness of God in our lives. You see, there's no reason for us to be in the state that we're in today. There is no reason. If you're listening to me, there is no reason for you to be in the miserable state of Christianity that you're in with all of the problems and the issues of your life that you have got in there because of your own disobedience. And there's only one way you're going to turn that around, and that is simply growing up into him and allowing that perfect model to be the model by which you build your relationship with Jesus Christ. Battleground verses. You take that verse out of your Bible and make him a begotten God, we're all in hell tomorrow. He was the begotten son of God. Begotten when he came into this world for the purpose of setting the modern example for you and for me. All right, we'll hold up there.